Hello and welcome to our podcast. I'm Dr. Mark White, and today I'm going to tell you a story. It's a story about an unlikely event. It surprised everyone, especially the patient. Today's story is titled, Man Suffers Orthopedic Decapitation. No One Notices. Our story begins with an unassuming factory worker just going through his daily routine. We will call him Joe. Joe wakes up at 4.30 every workday morning, gets in his car, eats and drinks a breakfast of Slim Jims from the convenience store while driving to the job with a steaming cup of coffee to wash down the greasy beef, works 12 long and grueling hours on a factory line for tire assembly, skips lunch or gets it out of a vending machine, then returns home with a burger or slaps together a cold sandwich. If he feels especially energetic, he prepares a grilled ham and cheese sandwich with a slice of tomato and a whole pickle on the side. All is washed down with a beer, then dessert, which was often another couple of beers. On special occasions, the dessert was an actual pastry, either a hostess ding-dong or a rainbow honey bun. The two beers were included as well. Then it was time to watch some shows on the TV, hit the shower, maybe watch some more shows until he fell asleep in his recliner, then finish off the night in the recliner if he didn't wake up, or totter off to bed to sleep until the alarm awakened him, alone. He was, like many, divorced for six years. No children. Weekends were a respite. A relaxed couple of days to eat better, sleep better, call some old friends, and dream about better days in the past and better days to come. Joe did everything around his little one-room apartment. He wasn't much for chores, but the trash did fill up regularly. Takeout containers, food wrappers, beer cartons, and bottles all needed to be taken out eventually. And it was one fateful early winter day before the first snowfall that it happened. Joe bagged his trash, as usual, and carried it down the stairs from his apartment. He lived on the second floor. His trash always filled up on Tuesdays, so that was time to take it out. The morning air was the kind of cold that made your breath puff out in big billowy clouds that hung in the fresh, crisp air. He chugged down the stairs, bottles clanking in the bags in each hand, then turned to his right, stepped forward the seven or eight feet to the garbage receptacle, heaved the bags into the dumpster, and turned back around to go up to his apartment. As soon as his left foot hit the ground in front of the stairs, his brain processed the shiny glaze his eyes saw. Ice. That was the last thing he remembered until he awoke with his head resting on something hard across the parking lot from the stairs next to the dumpster. His brain was foggy. He wasn't completely certain what had happened or how he ended up all the way over here with an oil-stained curb of concrete for a pillow. But he was cold, and his apartment was warm. He struggled to get up. Joe was a big man, the kind of man who shopped at the big and tall store for whatever was big. Right now, his body felt like one giant sack of cement that had set up, that didn't want to move, like he had frozen to the cold ground. And his head, it felt as if it was physically nailed to the ground. He gradually was able to wiggle his cold and stiff body, 
but his head didn't move. At all. He had to use both hands to cradle his head and pry it from up off the ground, as if pulling away from a giant magnet. With great care, and still holding his head in his hands, he made his way up the treacherous stairs to his apartment. He went inside, closed the door, went to the fridge, and grabbed a beer. He headed to his recliner, carefully sat down, opened the beer, set it on the chair-side table, and leaned back. A bolt of pain shot through his body. It was unlike anything he had ever experienced. He tried it again. This time the jolt of pain was followed by headache and nausea. He locked the chair in the upright position, gently leaned back, and discovered that if his head was properly supported on the headrest, he could remain upright and in good enough shape to sip his beer. The Tylenol he kept beside the chair for the end of the workday aches and pains was still there. He took some pills, sipped the beer, and cold work. He was going to be more than a little late. Maybe he could go in tomorrow instead. He took a sick day. By this time, two hours had passed. Joe sipped the beer until it was empty. He had to pee, so he got up, only it took him seven tries, and waddled at first, then glided gingerly to the bathroom. After he was finished, he looked in the mirror. That's when he noticed the giant knot on his forehead. It was huge and beginning to hang over his eyes. He slowly glided across the apartment like a man walking across an ice-covered pond, and the ice was thin. He gingerly lowered himself into the upright chair, opened one of the two additional beers he'd retrieved after the trip to the bathroom, and began sipping and flipping channels on the TV. Some hours later, he took more pills, drank more beer, and eventually passed out in his chair. The waning daytime sky outside his window turned dark, and only the light of the TV bathed his apartment in a flickering glow. And now here he was, in my office, after having told me the story of how he slipped on ice while taking out his trash. How he approached the stairs, fell forward, and smacked his forehead on the bottom step. The knot on his forehead was bruised, reduced, he said, to less than half of its former size, and he reported it was still tender to touch. He didn't move his head on his neck throughout the interview. He held his head balanced like it was a basketball on the sharp end of a pencil. I went through the usual history, but the part about what aggravated his condition grabbed my attention. What makes it worse? he repeated, mumbling as he did so. Well, let's see. I don't know if it's really worse, but sometimes I get a funny feeling. What do you mean by a funny feeling? I asked. Well, like when you bump your funny bone, he said. What do you mean exactly? Do you feel something into one of your arms, like when you bump your elbow? I asked for further clarification. Well, no, not exactly, but that same kind of nummy, tingly shooting sensation, like an electric shock. Yeah, I have that. What causes this sensation? Give me an example of a triggering event, I said. Well, 
It happens whenever I step off a curb, if I'm not careful. So, where do the symptoms go, I asked, the numby, tingly sensation. Everywhere, Joe said. Few moments are as revealing. We are taught that a positive Tonell sign is an indication of direct trauma to a nerve. The most familiar of these that we encounter is an ulnar nerve blunt force impact. It characteristically causes a radiating pain along the course of the entire nerve from point of impact distally to every nerve terminus supplied by that nerve. What we feel is proportionate to both the magnitude of the impact force on the nerve and the cross-sectional area of the sensate nerve tissue. Bigger nerves are capable of sending a stronger signal. Another common finding is included in the battery of tests for carpal tunnel syndrome. If you tap over the median nerve and it is sensitized, it will reproduce symptoms distal to the percussion point along the line supplied by the nerve tissue as it branches into the hand. What this patient just reported was extraordinary. So extraordinary, in fact, and rare, that I needed further clarification. So I asked, do you mean that you feel it to your fingertips or on both sides and into your toes on both feet? And to the top of my head, yes, he interrupted. Like I said, everywhere. When we think of nerve trauma, we usually think in terms of a single nerve or clusters of nerves, like with sciatica or brachial plexus lesions. In a flash like Joe's nerve pain, I understood what was wrong. Before seeing me, Joe had tried to work. It didn't go well. He had to quit after the first hour. His co-workers didn't notice what was wrong. They only noticed that Joe had to leave early. I was surprised he lasted that long. No one noticed the problem. Not even Joe. He just knew he hurt. Joe went to his physician. He was diagnosed with a stiff, painful neck, and he was referred to physical therapy. The physician did not notice the problem. What I noticed, apart from how Joe moved, was what he specifically said when he stepped off a curb. The symptoms went, to quote Joe, everywhere. So, what nerve was involved? The key realization here is that it wasn't just one nerve. It was all of them. Joe had total body Tennell's sign. All nerves were affected. That meant his entire spinal cord was at risk. There's only one place, musculoskeletally speaking, where that can happen. The upper cervical spine. As a consequence of his fall, Joe must have torn the strongest ligament in the human body, the cruciate ligament. That's the one that attaches the head to the neck. If it's completely ruptured, the condition is referred to as internal decapitation. It's also known as orthopedic decapitation. The average load to failure limit for this ligament complex is 436 newtons or about 98 pounds of tensile load. Joe weighs around 300 pounds. He would have hit the step with about three times the force necessary to tear his head loose from the ligaments that held it in place. 
70% of such cases are estimated to result in immediate death. The numbers aren't clear because of the high fatality rate. Of those who survive the initial trauma, most die in the ER or while hospitalized in the aftermath within a few days. That adds another 15% to our total. Survivors are most often left with permanent, severe neurological deficits and paralysis. The injury is exceedingly rare, occurring in less than 1% of all cervical spine injuries. Miraculously, Joe survived. And here he was, breathing, walking, and talking. We have special orthopedic tests for assessing the ligamentous integrity of the upper cervical spine. Aspinol's, the transverse ligament test, the alar ligament test, etc. I wasn't going to attempt any of them because we also have clinical reasoning strategies that trigger alarm bells. This was the biggest red flag I had seen in my career at that time. Total body tenels sign. That alone was enough to decide what to do. Wait here, I told Joe. Don't move, I added. I left the exam room to make a phone call. The orthopedic surgery department was upstairs from my office at that time. I spoke to a secretary who spoke to a resident who spoke to the attending physician who spoke to me. I knew the attending physician. As I explained the problem, I imagined his eyes widening and his mouth agape. He listened, didn't interrupt, and it was clear he understood the potential problem. He was both pragmatic and cautious. With me still on the line, he immediately called a neurosurgeon. They both agreed Joe needed an emergency diagnostic workup and possible surgery immediately. This is normally a life-ending event, and for survivors, life-changing. I sent Joe upstairs for an emergency consult that might end, if I was right, in surgical stabilization of his head on his neck. They saw Joe, did all the appropriate history and physical examination, at least such as was not limited by his suspected condition, did the appropriate diagnostic imaging studies, and confirmed the diagnosis. Joe was in surgery in less than 24 hours. This only happened because of all the people who had seen him and interacted with him, including his physician and Joe himself. No one noticed what I noticed. Joe had been, orthopedically, decapitated. I'm Dr. Mark White. That concludes our story for now. And, as always, may you and your patients be well. Thanks for listening.